Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Well, glad to be here today. Um, as you, you probably sent, we're, we're changing up the service. One of the big things is um, giving is a form of worship. And because of all the, the extra precautions with COVID and all of that, we had moved giving to the end of service and kind of off to the side. We're, we're bringing it back because we believe that it is part of worship and felt like um, we miss out a little bit when we don't think of it that way and we want to, to bring that back. Funny thing is, I never thought I'd have to relearn, but I realized we got to relearn how to pass the buckets. Um, so the, the ushers will be starting on the ends, passing them towards the center and then picking them up. So when that, that comes through, I know how many of you guys don't give with cash or check anymore? It's all online. Yeah. So that means when we, when we do the offering, it depends on how you do it. I set mine up to give automatically. I feel like that's a way that I can give it as a first fruits. You don't have to do that, but you can. Um, if you don't, then my suggestion would be use that time as a reminder. We understand you can pull out your phone when we start doing the offering. You can give that, that time as a reminder. That's totally fine. Of course, if you're still giving via something physical, then that's what the buckets are for, and they'll be coming through. Otherwise, it's a reminder. Um, and if it's, if it's something that you're doing like I am automatically, that's a time to, to be conscientious of what you're doing. And remember, okay, yeah, I did that. I set that up for the purpose of putting God first in my finances. So let's, uh, let's start today in the message. And before we do, I just want to pray a blessing over it. Lord, we just pray for this word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be present in this place. We ask that you would stir our hearts, that you would inspire us to grow uh, closer to you, to learn um, how better to serve you and, and become um, fruitful children uh, of yours. Lord, we pray that the words spoken today would be yours, not mine. We ask a blessing over every person, every family, and every home represented here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today I want to bring you on a Bible study journey looking for a pattern in Scripture. So how many have ever noticed that there are occasionally miracles in the Bible? You ever notice that God did some pretty awesome supernatural things in Scripture? So I'm going to bring a few of the times that God showed up in a supernatural way in Scripture, and we're going to look for a pattern there. Are you guys with me? Do you remember the story of Gideon? So Gideon was, by his own definition, a nobody. And God comes to Gideon and says to him, I want you to raise up an army and liberate Israel from the Midianites. The Midianites had an army of around 135,000. 135,000 soldiers. That's a lot of people. And God says to Gideon, I want you to raise up an army. And Gideon is all like 
totally kind of bent out of shape about it. He's like, how do I know for sure, for sure, for sure? And we have the whole story of him putting out the fleece and, and God confirms that this is what he wants him to do. And so Gideon says, all right, I'll do it. And he goes out there and he calls together an army. And he was nervous, but he got 32,000 people to show up. How many of you guys have ever, like, tried something you didn't know if it was going to work? And then it kind of starts coming together, and you're like, I might actually pull this off. That's the way I I see Gideon. He's like, I I didn't know what to expect, but I called people together. The the Israelites responded. 32,000 people came. And then in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. And he says, tell everybody who is afraid they can just go home. So Gideon gets up there. I almost imagine he thought he should go home. But he says, if you're afraid, you don't have to stay. 22,000 people left. He's left with 10,000 brave individuals. And he is like, oh, I, I like 32,000 better than 10, but okay. And then God says to him, that's still too many. I want you to send them down to the water. And whoever drinks by scooping the water up to their mouth while remaining vigilant, those people can stay. Everybody who sticks their face in the water to get a drink goes home. The Bible says there were only 300 who remained vigilant while they drank. And he sent everyone else home. And then God gave Gideon a supernatural plan, struck confusion into the hearts of the Midianites when those 300 surrounded the the camp with lamps hidden by jars. And they, at one moment, they blasted trumpets and they pulled the covers off the jars and the Midianites looked around and heard trumpets everywhere and saw lights surrounding them, thought that they were in trouble. They started fighting with each other and the 300 men annihilated and sent running the army of 135,000. Miracle number one. How many of you remember the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho? Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, Jericho. And as somebody named Joshua, I can remember this story a lot. The Israelites come to this highly fortified city, giant walls all the way around. Nobody had conquered that city. Nobody expected that anybody would conquer that city. And God said, I'm going to give you that city. And Joshua says, okay, what do we do? And God says, walk around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. And at the end, blow the trumpets. Does that make any sense? 
Does that make any sense? Think, think about Gideon for a minute. I'm gonna, we're gonna beat the Israel, we're gonna beat the enemy. Now, go home, go home. Joshua gets up there and he says, All right, guys, walk around. Oh, and by the way, no talking. How many of you ever tried to get a car full of kids to stop talking? I think that's one of the biggest miracles of the entire thing. I've heard it said that that he probably told them not to talk because otherwise they would have complained and grumbled and spoken their way out of the miracle that was coming. But the point is, God gave Joshua instructions to be followed that did not make sense to the natural mind. We know the result. We know the end of the story, right? We've heard it so many times. We know what's going on. But to them, they had never, this had never happened before. The fact that they were willing to follow those instructions How many of you realize how impressive that is? There's another story in Joshua 3, 13, where God sent the Israelites to cross the Jordan River. There was no bridge. And it says, And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan will be cut off and that came from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. He says, I'm commanding you to cross the river where there is no bridge, but when you start, it will still be flowing. He says, send the priests first, And they have to walk out into the water and nothing will happen until they have obeyed and they've gotten at least their feet wet. And then, the Bible says, that I will stop the water upstream and the water will become like a heap. God says he would dam off the river and let them through. But before the supernatural happened. What did they do? In Exodus chapter 17, 9 through 13, it says, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up on one side and one on the other so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. It's amusing to me to think that 
we, we see these two armies fighting and we think, well, the one who's working the hardest is going to win. But God had given Moses something to do. And as long as Moses did it, they were winning. And when he didn't, they were losing. Now, I have never been in hand-to-hand combat with swords and spears, but I cannot imagine something more difficult. One mistake could mean your death. And I'm sure it was very common for people to, to be wounded in the process. So they're going through this effort. But interestingly enough, it wasn't the effort of the soldiers upon which the success rested. It was on Moses and his obedience to what God had told him to do. We just read the story about them crossing the, the Nile, or I'm sorry, not the Nile, the Jordan River, and how that was miraculously. There is another situation where, G, where Moses put his staff. Remember the time when they crossed the Red Sea? God said, I'm going to send you across. But interestingly enough, God did all of the parting of the Red Sea, but he still, what did he tell Moses to do? Extend the staff over the water. Every time God gave them something to do. In Luke chapter 17, 12 through 19, Jesus is meeting some of his disciples for the first time. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, now, this is the story. Simon is a fisherman. He knows what he's doing. He's been doing this probably his whole life. Most likely, his dad was a fisherman, and he learned how to fish from his dad. He's been fishing in the same lake for all of these years. How many of you guys like to fish? Do you guys know anybody? My father-in-law is like a fisherman extraordinaire. He's got spots. He's got spots he tells people about. He's got spots he doesn't tell people about. He knows where to go. Fishermen learn the spots. They learn the habits. He'll tell you, it's time to fish. Nope, it's not the best time to fish. They watch the moon. They watch the barometric pressure. They watch the rain, before a rain, after a rain. You ask a fisherman, they'll tell you which is the better time to fish. They know when to fish. They know where to fish, when to fish, how to fish. The, you get a couple of fishermen together, start to get them talking about what they know. No, I'm going to use the blue spinner. No, the green spinner is better. And I'm going to be, and they, the thing about fishermen is they've been doing this and they've been watching for patterns and they, they know what should work. And they love to go out and do what they expect to work. Well, Peter had been out there. He had fished all night long. He had done everything he knew. And the Bible says they caught nothing. And they're coming back. Jesus sees them. And this guy who 
obviously doesn't know the lake or I would recognize him because I'm always out here on the lake and I see him all the time. But he says, oh, doesn't matter where you are, just throw your, throw your net on the other side of the boat. Imagine Peter. You think my problem is I'm casting on the wrong side of the boat? I've already been to the hottest fishing spot of the entire lake, and now I'm back where I dock my boat. This isn't even where the fish like to hang out. And you think my problem is it's the wrong side of the boat. Oh, yeah, 15 feet from here to there. That's where the difference is. But this is what it says, verse 12. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. But Simon answered and said, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let the nets down. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. And their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners of the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought in their boats to land... They forsook all and followed him. He gave them something that did not seem to make sense. When they did it, they saw a supernatural result. In Matthew 17, 27... They came to Jesus and said, we're being asked to pay taxes. We need money to pay these taxes. And the disciples start off with, well, should we even? And, and is it even right? And should we? And Jesus says, but so that we may not cause any offense, go to the lake, throw in your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my taxes and yours. And they obeyed, and they found the coin, and they paid the taxes. In Luke chapter 17, verse 11 through 19, Jesus comes across a group of men with leprosy. The Bible says there were 10 of them. And it says that he prayed for them and then he told them, go be tested with the priest. Present yourself to the priest. Because the, the policy, the, the Old Testament law regarding leprosy was, if you had any of these types of contagious diseases, you had to be separated from society. But if your disease was healed whether it was leprosy or any other of a list of contagious diseases, you had to go present yourself to the priest when you were healed. Not before, but when you were healed. But he said to them, in their leprous state, go present yourself to the priest. And this is what it says. 
As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. As and as they went, they were cleansed. He said, go show yourself to the priest, something they were supposed to do only after they were healed. But before they were healed, they started on their way, and the Bible says that as they went, they were healed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice, and he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan, so he wasn't even Jewish. He was from a nearby population of people that were not well looked upon by the Jews. And Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. There are a couple of different times in the Bible when Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Do you remember? He said that to the woman with the issue of, or of blood who reached out and touched his garment. He said that to the man who was lowered through the ceiling of the, um, the building where he was at. His friends were trying to reach Jesus and they couldn't, so they ripped a hole in the roof and lowered him down to where Jesus was at. Not every situation did he say that, but when he did... I think it means something. What faith did that leper have? That leper had faith that something was going to change because he headed to see the priests when he was still a leper. He obeyed God and started moving towards, kind of like those, those priests who walked into a river that was still there. Or like the Israelites who headed around and around Jericho expecting something they didn't know how God would do it. Looks like I accidentally wrote a verse twice. There we go. Moses in Genesis chapter 22, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, this is, this is when God had called Abraham, told him, I want you to take your son up to a mountain. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Abraham does. He obeys. He brings his son up there. The Bible says that he tied him hand and foot on the altar. He raises up his arm to complete that task. And the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this. Why? Because you have done this. What did he do? What did you say? He obeyed. And have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me.
I love reading the Bible stories and seeing the miracles and thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure most of us have thought this, what would it be like if I was there? What would it be like if I was there to to walk across the Jordan and see the supernatural dam of, of water there? What would it be like if I was there? Add any one of these miracles to feed the 5,000, to see all of these things. We wonder how we would have reacted to the miraculous. But the real first question is that we need to ask ourselves is, would we have obeyed when asked? You see, there were people who the Bible tells us almost missed their miracle. Do you guys remember the story of Naaman? Naaman was a Syrian official. He had gotten leprosy. His slave girl was captured from Israel, and she said, there is a man in Israel, a prophet of God, who can heal your leprosy. So Naaman goes. He brings carts full of treasure and gold and clothes and all of these valuable things. He comes ready to buy a miracle. He shows up at the door of the prophet. He knocks on the door with all his entourage, expecting to be received as a foreign noble. And Gehazi, the servant, opens the door and says, whoa, look at all this. Gehazi's impressed. He says, what's going on? He says, well, I've come. And he goes back and he tells the prophet. And all the prophet says is, well, tell him to go back and wash, dip himself seven times in the Jordan River. And he comes back, and the servant says, um, well, actually, the prophet doesn't feel like seeing you today, but he did tell us how you can get healed. Just go down to the river, dip seven times. That's all it'll take. Side story, Gehazi tries to get a hold of some of those riches later, but listen, Naaman, the Bible says, got so upset Let's look in verse 11. It says, but Naaman went away angry and said, oh, I thought he would surely come down to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord of God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? He's like, I remember seeing that river as we went by. That's like a dirty, muddy river. I don't know if you guys have ever been. We are blessed here in Michigan to have beautiful lakes. We have some amazing turquoise-looking lakes and some pretty ones. When I was in college and down in Oklahoma, every lake looked like a recently stepped-in mud puddle. They're like, the waves are like a brown. You know, you, you can stir up a mud puddle and it just, it's like, that's what every lake looked like. The Jordan River, sadly, isn't one of those like gorgeous, cascading, white, pure ones where you can see the fish swimming by and no the Jordan River is kind of one of those mud puddly looking things it's a it's a river 
but it's not gorgeous. And he says, hey, we're from an area where the rivers are beautiful and pristine. You want to go take a bath in those. Why would I go dip myself in that chocolatey brown mud puddle of a river that's going on here? He didn't even receive me. And it says, couldn't I wash in one of those to be cleansed? See, he's thinking through it logically. He says, if I'm going to wash something undesirable off, wouldn't I want to do that in a clean-looking river, not this? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. He was that close to marching all the way back to Syria without receiving a miracle. Why? Because he wasn't expecting. It didn't make sense. How am I going to knock the walls down by walking around seven times and shouting? How am I going to get rid of a disease that is considered incurable by just dipping in a mud puddle seven times? How am I going to do this? He, he, didn't, he didn't want to obey because what he was being asked to do was counterintuitive. If God had asked him to do something logical, he was ready to do it. In fact, he had brought treasures. He expected to have to pay a very high price. He brought as much as he could afford with him. He was ready for something big because that made sense. Sometimes the question we have isn't, how would I have reacted to the miracle? But my question is, would I have obeyed the thing that released the power of the supernatural? If, if we had been there, would we have dipped in the river? Would we have walked quietly around the city seven times? Would we have started walking into the water even though the river was still there? Would we have held out our hand over the river? Would we have obeyed? Here's the thing. The pattern I was hoping we would notice is that obedience releases the supernatural. When we obey what God has called us to do. And here's the other thing. God has a pattern of asking something that is counterintuitive. Like he did with Gideon. He says, I want you to beat them, but, but I'm not going to ask you to make your army bigger. I'm going to ask you to make your army smaller. You want me to beat the enemy by making my army smaller? Okay, did it. You want me to make it even smaller? I want, I want you to do this, 
But I'm going to ask you to do something that on the surface won't look like that's what it's going to accomplish. But if you trust me, if you will believe me, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room to receive it. Oh, he went there. It's a pastor talking about giving. God said... Give, and then you'll be blessed. He said, make your army smaller, and you'll defeat the enemy. He said, walk into the water without a bridge, and, and I will dam the waters up and make a dry place for your entire people to cross. God says things that are counterintuitive, but then when we follow through, he says, I will Open the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. When, when, a, when a pastor starts talking about giving, people get suspicious because they think it's self-serving. Paul dealt with that. This is what Paul said in Philippians 4:17. He said, "Not that I desire the gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account." I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul says a couple of things about giving there that are super important. He says, it is more important to me the benefit you will receive when you give than what I will receive when I give. As a church, of course, we need finances in order to pay the bills and do the thing. Yep. But the real goal, I believe the thing that I will be judged most severely for if I avoid, if I avoid talking about giving, I don't think God's going to be like, Josh, you were supposed to do that because I needed, you know, I needed to do more. We needed to buy fancier seats in the sanctuary. We needed, no. He's going to say, that message, that giving was, was tied to the reward and the blessing that they were to receive. This is what Paul says. Listen, he says, I desire, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. It is your reward, another translation says, that he is most concerned with. If, if you knew, if you had a friend who knew, so, you know, he traveled back in time and whatever, you, he just had absolute certainty that Bitcoin was going to go up 10,000%. He knew what day it was going to be at its lowest, and he knew what day it was going to be at its highest, and he knew what to do. If he said, well, I didn't tell you because I didn't think you'd want me to tell you, tell, me, tell you to spend money, what would you say? Of course I wanted to spend money that's going to have a benefit, a blessing. No, you're not, not doing me harm when you share with me how to receive blessing. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 says, 
One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Man, it's, it's counterintuitive. But over and over and over and over in Scripture, God says, if you will obey me in something that feels counterintuitive, you will see my hand at work. God said, one person gives freely, but he gains more. Another withholds unduly, keeps it all, but still ends up in poverty. There is a pattern in Scripture that when we will obey what God has called us, even when it is counterintuitive, he will step in with the supernatural. When I was a teenager, I spent most of my summers uh, on missions trips. One of the places that I went a lot was, was the mountains in Mexico, in Hidalgo. Do we, anybody familiar with Hidalgo, Mexico? There was a particular town there by the name of Agua Tapada, which means stopped up water. So this village had been built most likely on a spring. And then the spring stopped flowing, but the village was still there. The first time that I visited that village, in order to get water, you had to hike about 30 minutes down a mountain path, like no stones paved. I mean, just, I don't know if you've ever seen when a trail, then the rain comes down it and it digs that deeper and you got all these ruts and sometimes the trail was almost the worst spot to walk. You had to walk 30 minutes down to where there was a, a still functioning well and spring, and they had this cistern that would catch the water, and they would collect it, and they would go back up. The first time that I got there, Aguatapada did not have any electricity, and there was the nearest road was a four-and-a-half-hour hike away. So to get there, you'd drive on these two tracks until the two tracks stopped, and then we'd get out of the car, and we would hike, and you'd wade across the river, and then you'd climb up a mountain, then you'd go back down a valley, and then you'd come back up, and there was Agua Tapada. Before that was Buena Vista, and then on the bottom was Boca de Leon, if I remember right. Anybody from around there can go confirm that on a map. But anyway, Agua Tapada at that time had no electricity, no running water, no roads. And... When my, I was visiting there, when I got there, they remembered when my father had been visiting there, like many years before. And this is the story he tells about the first time he went to Aguatapada. He went there. The pastor's house was literally sticks tied together. Dirt floor, weeds for a roof. And the pastor learned about sowing and reaping in the scripture. And when my dad got there, he was there to preach the gospel. The church, by the way, was just 
a couple of benches in somebody's yard. And this man killed one of his few chickens so that he could sow into the church and and feed the traveling people that were coming through. And he wanted to give an offering because he had learned to give. And my dad said, I did not want to take it. He says, I was sitting here. He says, tears are coming to my eyes. I'm looking. He doesn't, have, he doesn't have a floor in his house. I can see through his house. I can stand on one side of his house and see people walking by the other side because the sticks don't come together. He says, I didn't want to accept that offering. But he insisted. He says, I, I took that and we used that to, to go and minister and pay for the gas to go to minister to the next place and I didn't think about it again until the next time that I came through and the pastor was so excited to come and show me that and I don't remember the details of what had happened in his Business, which would be just a tiny little agricultural business, what he could grow and, and, and produce on his little side of the mountain field. Their fields are like by angle. God had blessed him. And he now had an actual roof. The next time that he came, he had a portion of his floor was concrete. He was living it up. It wasn't. We look at it and say, man, that... But as he tapped in to the power of obeying, planting seeds and seeing it, he began to prosper even in that back corner where electricity hadn't gotten to, where cars hadn't gotten to. And he said, thank you for teaching me this. When I went there, you couldn't see through the walls anymore. They had built a church that resembled a building. And, and, and people throughout the village had come to know God's love. If this can work, in Aguatapada, Mexico, it can work in Holland. Luke 6:38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom. Proverbs 11:25 says, the generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will land on the head of him who sells it. God says in Malachi 10, he says, bring the whole tithe. What's a tithe? A tithe is a tenth. Into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. 
God says, test me in this. Test me in this. I wanted to, to share and talk a bit about giving today because we were, we were changing the order of our service. Why? Because we recognize and believe. We consider giving to be an act of worship. The Bible says where your treasure is, your heart is also. Wherever we, we turn our heart, we'll naturally desire to spend our funds. And wherever we spend our funds, our heart will naturally follow. This is, it is a part of what we do to keep our hearts and minds focused and, and passionate about him is how we give. So we are. We're going to be changing our service order so that giving becomes a part of our worship time. And I wanted to challenge you guys to look at giving as a form of worship and then God says, test me in this. And I happened to look up and I realized this is about the same time we did this last year because 90 days from now is Christmas Eve. How many knew that? 90 days from now is Christmas Eve. God said, test me now in this. Here's, here is, I am inviting you to test God in this. If you have not been a tither, I'll offer you this deal. If you will tithe for 90 days, that would be up till Christmas, and you need to do so in a way that is recorded, so you can either give online or give with a check or put it in an envelope and put that down so that we can track that you did give it. If you do not see the blessing of God on there, if you repent of having tithed, if you think that it did you more damage than good, then Come Christmas time, you tell me, we'll look up what you gave, and I will return it. God said, test me now in this. He said, and has, has a pattern, that when he does think, when he asks us to obey, that then he releases, and his, his, his requests don't always seem to make sense. So I'm going to be financially blessed by getting rid of a portion of my income? Yep. Don't believe me? Try it out. We will, we will return what you gave over these 90 days if you do not believe that it has been worth it, that God has followed through with his promise. Let's pray. Come on up.